0: Hello, Michael, how are you today? I am very well, Luke. I am uh, can see you can see the finish line of the year, year and and uh, and uh, motivated for summer.
1: It's lovely to have you as a guest on the back of house podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've been very elusive, I
0: know. It's just uh, you can you can thank my um
1: the people demand to know why you have been missing for two podcasts.
0: without without um being uh, throwing my boss in it, I've been a little bit. Um, um, thrown in the deep end uh, with our new minister, Minister John Graham uh, coming in and um, particularly working on what's been called the vibrancy reform agenda, which um, is legislation in the House on basically a whole bunch of things that are near and dear to our our listeners' hearts, trying to improve the environment for noise and sound management. Um, Clicker and Gaming proposed to take over single management from licensed venues making permanent things like our fresco dining is another one. Um, There's a number of parts of the work that we've been doing, modernising the um, Planning and Liquor Act. There's a few changes coming there. So uh, it's probably the largest um, overhaul in living memory, really, for me, of um, what I think the laws are that impact going out. Um, And, yeah, we've been busy on that and just such an eye-opener in um, how, how, how the legislative process works and cabinet and all these kinds of governmenty things that have, you know, had to uh, learn very quickly, but I've been sharing that. Yeah. That process and um, touch wood. We, we see those reforms um, come through. What's the uh, timeline on I guess confirmation of the
1: changes um have there any have been any been announced yet or is everything
0: still in the like in the pipeline it's 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 imminent and perhaps like um when this podcast comes out that they may have actually been passed is that that close um so that's in, in in parliament next week is my understanding um obviously it's up to parliament to now decide but uh it's been i think for many and you know this has come really from the top with the premier and uh and my minister and, you know, happy to see that there's broad political support for it. Now um, we've got to obviously um, see if the, how how it goes through. One of the last things for anyone who's followed my own story, which, um, you know, I'm I'm not being presumptive, but uh, it it does make permanent this office in New South Wales government, um, the Office of the 24-hour Economy Commissioner, and that in technical terms means a statutory appointment. It, to me, like, at a personal level and it's not about me it's about the office but uh it's um it's basically saying that this stuff is a priority for government for the long term it's not just a um you know a a flippant idea and i you know i see that as you know you know a real indicator that government is serious about um putting sydney back on the global stage really um and you know oftentimes you talk don't we and people cite a peak point being the olympics in the area that followed like this is really about re-establishing us and and, you know, some happily, and I know that it doesn't always feel like that necessarily on every shift in every bar or restaurant, but the tide is turning um, by any metric. Growth in nighttime economy, positioning global rankings. Um, Monocle stuck us back in the top 20 recently. So, you know, it's starting to, we're starting to get there, I think.
1: It's um, quite amazing. I'm going to ask you a question after this, but quite amazing to see the different uh or perspectives or viewpoint on the nighttime economy and just the hospitality and sort of leisure sector in general. Like if you compare it to 20 years ago, which I know is, is a significant amount of time, but even 10 years ago, what well, it was 10 years that the lockout laws came in, maybe 2010-ish. Yeah, t- t- 2014
0: they hit in earnest, but they sort of t- 2012 is when they kind of, you know, started tightening. Yeah.
1: That's not that long ago. Like, and that was a completely different approach, um, mindset to the industry, really. So it's pretty amazing um, to comprehend how much it's changed in in a relatively short period of time. And uh, it's pretty exciting. Like even the, the, the news that I've seen around noise and new rights for businesses to make noise without, you know, the residents having, you know, the final... Um, or the ability to complain and have a significant impact on a business's ability to trade like even things like that uh, Are just amazing
0: to see so yeah, it goes to business certainty doesn't it? That's what like essentially that's what we're trying to do We're trying to give businesses the confidence that they can trade late with noise um, sound and um, and Because without that um, You know the, the ability to commit capital the ability to invest all these things are um, not, not where they should be so I'm, Mm. it's, if I'm being self-indulgent, but like for a very long time, you know, my focus through time out and then my time in is very much aimed at the business operating environment. Where we are now is getting into the the framework, the legal, the legislative environment and, um, and and fiddling with things there. Um, What makes me excited, even more excited is that after that comes capital. And if you can change the regulatory environment, then you can change the mood of capital in the market and that. uh, There is no bigger lever than um, than enterprise and capital. Um, And what we're trying to do is just make the conditions um, better for business certainty and for those doing what we love.
1: And just quickly, anecdotally, how are you? I was in Sydney last week, uh, a very brief visit, but it felt like it was heaving. Like I hadn't felt it that busy in a really long time. I know we are approaching the silly season, but... uh, it was it was busy and it felt really good are you seeing the same thing
0: i mean the thing is that like the new venues that were going to open are opening and open like you know, great news on the late night dining scene you know Darrell's just opened 2am um curry joint like and there are more venues like that which is the reinvention of sydney happening um so there's a fair bit of excitement in the market the other thing is that um uh, as good as the city is the there's so much more activity happening in our suburbs um, and in, across greater Sydney in areas, you know, in, in the West and Southwest, there's 30 to 40% growth to, mm. know, in the last 12 months. And that's a function of people staying from working from home and, you know, um, and just the product getting better. And so centers like Harris Park and um, Kemba, Burwood, you know, Pemrith even like there's just more and more activity going on. So um, all of that's, you know, pretty good if you're me, but like, obviously there's a, a long way to go on many of these things and on the regulatory stuff to anyone who's following that story. to mention that don't think that this is just a one-off, like there's uh, the directive to, um, this is what we could get done this year um, and we'll go again um, next year. And for me, it's about continuous improvement and just making the conditions for trade better and better and better over the next three to five years.
1: Good
0: stuff, mate. And do you want to um, introduce our guests for today? Uh sure. Um, so uh, it's been a while between between podcasts for me, but um, we're about to welcome on um, uh, AJ Anthony Jones, who uh, I think um most people would be aware of in the market. Um, he's the CEO of Boathouse Group, and and Ben Collis, who uh is uh, and let me get his job title correct head of commercial and marketing at the Boathouse Group. So, um, you know, two very experienced um, hospitality uh, veterans um, now working together uh, at the top of the Boathouse Group um, and positioning it for um, its uh, a future. So um, I think coming into summer, what a great uh, pair to get on and uh, have a chat to.
1: Yeah, nice. Um, looking forward to it. Um, we might as well
0: get stuck in. Very good. Great to welcome you both to the Back of House podcast and indeed to be doing a Back of House podcast. It's been a, a torrid um, few months for myself and Luke, so we, we haven't put one out for a while. I'm constantly reminded, but uh, probably probably the last one for the year, I imagine, and um, no better guests to have on. Um, so it'd be good just to set a bit of context. So both uh, you, Ben, and AJ are very well known in the industry, but just maybe um, we'd love to sort of get an update of where, you, where you're at, what you're doing with Boathouse. But maybe just for listeners, a bit of background might might be useful, I think, um, in terms of you know what got you into hospitality, um, what your career, career's been.
2: So no, 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 the answer to the question for me, Mike, is when I finished school, The day after I finished school, I vividly remember my dad saying to me, say, what are you going to do? Like, you need to get a job. And at the time, and still actually, my my best mate, his father owned um, a couple of hotels in Sydney, a couple of pubs in Sydney, the the White House family. And so I remember ringing my best mate and saying, you know, I need to get a job. And he said, well, why don't you ask dad if you can pick up glasses at the pub? And I said, right, that sounds like a good idea. So within a couple of days, I actually started picking up glasses at what was then the Vicar, which is out at Dural. And I spent uh, the first kind of two, two or three years out there learning how to wash glasses, change kegs, pick up plates, clean ashtrays, all those awful things. Um, and then quickly realised that I thought that this was a pretty pretty uh, fun environment but really exciting as far as watching people have a good time. So I spent many years working um, across pubs, worked with the Thomases at the Oaks Hotel, I met Andrew when I was at the Grangate Hotel, and then progressed into wanting to know more about the brand side. So I jumped over and worked for Heineken Australia at the point in time where there was the Olympics and Rugby World Cup, and it was probably four or five years of the greatest career, time of my career, sorry, and had a lot of fun during that period and learnt a lot about the brand on the brand side. Then at the uh, the... The benefit or the luxury of working for a couple of the champagne brands with with my hennessy through tucker seabrook and then i jumped back onto the to the kind of retail side or the the, the hotel side and i owned my own business in there for a very short period of time with a bar in the city um, but then i jumped into working with maryvale for probably what has been the, the majority of my career over the last 15 or so years which bar in the city was it I knew you were going to ask me that so there's a little (laughs) underground bar on elizabeth street that used to be called bar europa oh yeah i I don't know Bar europa i remember that i don't know if it's still trading but there's this little underground bar probably only held about 150 people and and we used to trade pretty late into the evening and i owned it with another guy called mark hamilton who's in the events business for (laughs) about two or three years it was interesting experience (laughs) i'm sure i want to go back there do you know what year it was Approximately? Oh, it would have been probably early two thousands. Post Olympics. I couldn't tell you exactly. Yeah, it was post Olympics, definitely. But you know, it was a it was a really good learning curve as far as learning how to run small business.
0: By underground, of course, for listeners, he's not saying anything illegal about the operation, just for the record. But uh, I do. <laughs> I do, I do once remember being asked to leave that venue on one, one, or, one or more occasions myself, um, which was probably... Might have been me. Interest, best, ...best interest of RSA. I was a lawyer at Allen's for a while there, so I, we, uh, we used to frequent Bay Europa often.
1: It's always great fun asking our lawyer to leave a bar. By the way, <laughs> like I had to do that on many occasions, and there's never an argument. It's
0: very surprising. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. just just uh, helping us find the exit is probably the uh, main thing to do at that point. But Ben, what about yourself, mate? Like, um, it would be good to get your little uh, potted history.
3: Yeah, sure. I'll I'll, uh, I'll give you the quick version. But um, I'm I'm a Kiwi. I grew up in in New Zealand, and I guess. Um, Early on, and probably my my teenage years, my older sister used to um, run the the New Zealand leg of the V8 Supercars, which was um, an event that I used to get involved in every year when I was at school and help her with all the like corporate hospitality. Um, I guess that was really with the the nest egg for me around really having an appreciation for big events. Um, and uh, as AJ said, it was really kind of seeing the way people reacted to, you know, great hospitality and great events and and that thrill from it, um, that, you know, gave me a a bit of an itch. So I went on after school to join um, a couple of media businesses. So I worked for MTV for a while. Um, running some of their events and, and things and um, and worked uh, over in london as well for another TV network but I guess that combined with um, I've always been a really big foodie um, really passionate about cooking and and grew up you know cooking with my my mum and my sisters so when the opportunity came about about eight years ago for me to join a hospitality business in, in maryvale I really jumped at the chance um, to combine that sort of experience of events and um and sponsorship and, and partnerships with um you know food and and kind of hospitality and and yeah i took that chance back in 2015 and ever since then i've been um you know just loving working in the hospitality restaurant and bar industry joining a few dots here and i
0: assume that's kind of how you and aj got to know each other particularly in the Merivale era and then and then um and goes without saying what an impressive double act i guess is probably the You know without blowing smoke but it's um great skill sets for both across different disciplines even though related to hospitality um around sponsorship and marketing and events it's um as i'm listening i'm thinking through some of the things i'm trying to do in my role which is to diversify uh the skill set within the sector so that they it's not just one-dimensional and nothing like that's really about business resilience in the long term but anyway the then um, I suppose in what's brought us together today is really the um, move to Boathouse Group with you, um, AJ's CEO, I guess. And did, Ben, you joined at the same time or was it sort of...
3: I was probably three, three or four months after AJ I joined. So, yeah, I've, I've been here for about six months. I think AJ's now about nine months.
0: So, like, I think for siders at least, um, well, I don't know, like people... I'm familiar with the group, but maybe um, it'd be good to give um, listeners... A, an overview of the um operations the footprint um the types of businesses and clues the name a bit, but um yeah maybe one of you could uh, do that
3: yeah so the boathouse group it started back in 2008 with um a, a cafe in palm beach um the boathouse palm beach cafe um and has since grown so it's been in operation for about 15 years um and has grown now into 10 venues across you know ranging from the central coast predominantly northern beaches focused and then um, a couple of venues over now in the eastern suburbs of sydney as well we employ about 700 wonderful staff um so um got a lot of yeah great people um in the business um, and really, we pride ourselves on iconic destinations. So, the business is currently all the venues are on the waterside. Um, so, everything from um, the Patonga Hotel up in Um, Patonga down to you know our our venue in Rose Bay everything I guess the unique thing about the business is that um, all of the venues are on the water and really iconic destinations so at the moment the the venues we've got is a range of casual dining um, cafes through to all-day dining venues bars um, we have some accommodation as well up in um, Baron Joey House up in Palm Beach and at Patonga. We have a really strong events and weddings business um, and one venue of ours is um, actually just an a, um, event space in um, Whale Beach called Moby Dick's. Um, and we also have a homewares business um, with a, a homewares store up in Palm Beach and also an online homewares uh, business as well.
0: That's a, I didn't know that about the homewares stuff. Is that like uh, a new thing, an existing bit, like a growth? opportunity or just seeing what it's looking like at the moment and
3: uh it's not new actually it's been around for um quite a few years so they had a a brick and mortar um, site up in palm beach um called the boathouse home uh, where they built a homeware store and out the back there was like a bakery and sort of breakfast offering um, we've recently actually turned the Homeway store into like an Italian pop-up called Casa, but it's actually immersed into the Homeway store. So you can dine and shop basically at the same time, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a nice kind of additional element to the business. Obviously the, the DNA of the business um, is all about sort of the, the beautiful venue styling and aesthetic and sort of the, um, you know, everything from the, the room styling through to the crockery and plates and things. So, the, you know, the idea of the, the previous, you know, owners of the business was to start to sell some of those things um, through a homeways business, which worked really well.
0: It's um like interesting. Like I was just reflecting in terms of the adage that used to apply to Sydney and I'm probably going to insult a few people with this one, but there was this saying that you could have a view and, and great food, but you couldn't have both together. Like that was the a, a view. And one thing that's always fascinated me in my role and AJ, and I've talked about this, um, is that a city that is uh, the most excellent harbour in the world. Like we we sort, we, we sort of don't really, I don't think, from a, a, a DNA perspective, when it comes to hospitality, we're not really identified by it. Like obviously the bridge and the opera house, and you know images of Bondi are kind of synonymous with Sydney, but it's. Interesting to me when there's, that there's so much um, real estate and quite a bit of waterfront or water facing um, F&B, but it's just not, I don't think a really strong, well, present company accepted perhaps um, as part of strong strongest story is, which we perhaps could have, I think.
3: I, I agree. I think. You know, maybe there's a, a touch of like laziness when you've got a really great location. You don't really have to really push really hard on your um, your product and, and service or as much as you would if you were in the back streets and didn't have a view. But it's definitely what we talk about a lot is that we don't want to be reliant on our locations. We want to match our beautiful view and locations with exceptional hospitality um, and product. And we want to continue pushing and, um, and improving on that. Um, so we create you know, really amazing experience, Um, but I'm I'm with you. I don't think the the Sydney Harbour is really utilised enough for what it is. It's such a beautiful,
2: beautiful thing. I think think the other thing that I'd add to that, Mike, is um, you and I, again, have very briefly discussed this, but the further that we get into this business, both Ben and I think that there's a great opportunity to, you know, use that harbour or the harbour, which is one of the most beautiful assets of this city to connect people to venues that would typically take you a long time to drive to and and obviously a, a significant amount of time. And we, we really want to explore and uh, have it on our roadmap to go, okay, well, how do we get um, a boathouse transfer, so to speak, that... There's obviously water base that goes between our sites in, you know, Manly Pavilion and then, you know, Balmoral and then jets over to Rose Bay and then goes around the corner to CYC. And we've also got our eye on a couple of other places that are within the harbour basin that, that we think is a really unique proposition and offer that we could say to customers and consumers, hey, you know, on a Saturday or a Sunday or hopefully every day of the week, this is this is our on-demand service that goes to all of our venues.
0: Yeah, like I, uh, it's, it's something that's on my mind a bit and um we're in the process of refreshing the strategy the 24-hour economy and um i think the narrative and water um is just a open you know such a big opportunity but one thing that occurs to me a little bit in some of the analysis i've done and this has been thrown up by the pandemic and the businesses that were mostly identified as what people call visitor economy and visitor economy only like so a lot of um uh, operators in the market to my mind maybe being polite were focused on visitors to the ex- exclusion of residents and then of course once the pandemic hit you know the ex- saying of um, <laughs> um being caught with your pants down a bit because there was just no visitors and the thing about it is um that you know i always think that the as a, for many many tourists when i'm a tourist you always want to go where the residents are going and having a great time in addition to the you know the iconic sites around the world Uh, And, you know, to me, I wonder the extent to which some of our um, water-facing assets more generally have been, you know, um, residents spurned because of that, um, you know, just focus on visitors and feeling a little bit foreign. Like I always feel like that particularly around East Circular Quay, it's just a very our experience for as a resident for that of the city as you walk around it as an example like it's not inviting to you as a local it just sort of feels wrong to me i don't know with some exceptions there like the um the oyster bar and opera bar two exceptions but that series of cafes along the edge are just kind of almost <laughs> i feel almost oh, i probably being upset a few people with that comment but um it's interesting to me to see if well, that's where you play if you play to residence like and then you know can build build that out to tourists, I think it's a stronger, stronger strategy.
3: Yeah, definitely agree.
1: Oh, just on that, and this may be a really silly question um, because they come out of my mouth quite often, but do you see opportunity for for the brand outside of waterfront locations? Like, I mean, uh, uh, there's obviously, you're limited by opportunity, I guess, in some senses in being, you know, having to be waterfront, which all your venues are. Can you see it, and maybe that's for you, Ben, can you, get a little, uh, Anthony, can you see it applying into different environments and enabling growth there, or would you need to change the brand or create a new brand to fit into different locations?
2: Uh, my The answer to that for me is I think the Boathouse brand is iconic and it's, it's a brand that people love and it's associated very heavily or connected very heavily to Ben's point around those iconic seaside uh locations or harborside locations do we think that there's an opportunity to evolve the brand that has a connection to boathouse as a you know as a a kind of authenticity or or mother brand then definitely and we're working on that currently and we you know without telling you everything that we're going to be doing in our business plan (laughs) we've got a we've got some pretty exciting things that are coming up that are going to that are going to address exactly what you're asking, Luke. So, you know, the, the summary of that is we we definitely do. We always think that there'll be a place for the iconic waterside locations with Boathouse, but there'll also be an evolution of the brand as well very soon.
0: Without uh, asking the hard hitting questions, I can't help but deserve that, uh, and if this information is accurate, that the Boathouse on Blackwater Bay, uh, for example, is permanently closed. I don't think that's anything to do with you guys, is it? I don't know that venue, um, but...
2: No, nothing to do
0: with us, though, I'm just saying that that's a space that is permanently closed at the moment, and also conven- conveniently located to my um, address. So if, if you know, Deedy.
2: I think Ben can probably allude a little bit more to. I'll let him answer like what the future state looks like from a branding point of view, but yeah, I, I get your point, Mike, and and I would I would describe what we're looking at now as we're looking at any opportunistic site that we think fits with what we want to do. And, and I'll let Ben kind of elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's two pieces here. Yeah, in the short term, we're really focused on
3: our existing sites um, and really getting the most out of them. Um, we feel like, and we've already started to execute a few, um, you know, strategies around maximising what we've we've got um, in terms of amazing locations. And I guess and a good example of that is, you know, we recently launched evenings at Shelley Beach. So traditionally that venue was, you know, really cafe style breakfast offering kind of into early lunch and, and then closed. And we've recently um, yeah, launched an evening offering there. So an, a more all day casual dining offering that runs through till you know 9 10 p.m at night so short-term focus is yeah maximizing and optimizing the assets that we have um but definitely in the future there's going to be an evolution of the brand and um i think for us you know we're, we're trying to create some more diversification in our offering and it's uh you know probably not brain great scientists to to work out that we're a very seasonal operation when it comes to our existing sites because of their locations. Obviously, a really great business in the warmer months and and summer months, but in the winter, people are less likely to go to the seaside. So I guess in our long-term strategy, we're really trying to build out how we create a diversification of offerings that can be more all year round. And there's a few things coming up. And one in particular is uh, we've got a site down in North Wollongong which is on the water um, which will be a boathouse site but we've also recently um, secured a site in Mona Vale which is, um, is near to the water but not right on the water's edge it's actually the top floor of the Mona Vale golf club um, and that will probably be the first sort of introduction of uh, an evolution of the boathouse brand that's more sort of I guess the way I'm talking about it is the boathouse meets um, country club um, so A lot of the sort of DNA of the business being really abundant in its styling and you know really a beautiful offering in terms of its food and product and service will still be consistent with our seaside offerings, but the the look and feel might kind of um, change and bring a little bit more kind of rural um, or you know inland uh, I guess aesthetics to the rooms. That makes sense.
1: Is it going to be called uh, farmhouse or
3: country house (laughs) maybe? We haven't finalised a, a name yet, but, yeah, there's a few few of those sorts of ideas bouncing around. I think, you know, obviously, yeah, the Boathouse brand is, is a really strong brand for us and, um, and really people know what it is um, and we have a lot of IP in it. So, yeah, the evolution of that brand, I, I would like to think we won't go too far away from um, some of those key elements and and the word house is obviously a big part of our brand so that could be a nice way for us to you know build um, an inland offering or brand
0: there is a house in New Orleans
1: I think um I, I would hate to labor the point too much on location because there's a lot more in your business in terms of its DNA that I think makes it successful. I feel like I know the answer to what it is, but I guess from your perspective, and that's purely sorry, just as having experienced it as a consumer, like it's I've got my my opinion. but how would you define or what what sort of things do you look at internally that you think really drive the success of the business?
3: i mean my my view and i'm sure aj's got his view as well but it all starts with the people Um, and this business has always been a a family-owned business and the culture that family culture really runs through the group and i think um the style of venue and the kind of casual offering that the boathouse has creates a, a vibe and culture within our team that is really fun and um and casual and I think as a customer coming into a boathouse venue, you really feel that um, from the people, first and foremost, Um, and I think that's so important in hospitality. First and foremost, we've just got a wonderful team and a wonderful culture, uh, and people love the brand, our team love the brand, and they really live and breathe it. Secondly, I think the business has been built on venue presentations, like the incredible aesthetic that has been, you know, created in some of these locations. Um that, you know, as you say, it's not just dependent on the location and the view. You walk into the space and you watch people's faces, just aghast at how sort of abundant the the florals and the greenery and, you know, the um wallpapers and, you know, crab pots and all the things that sort of the, the boathouse have have become synonymous with. And it's really abundant and like over the top. And you know, it kind of immerses you into this, you know, um, different sort of world which I think has been one of you know the biggest successes of this group
1: that's where my head was at with it uh, obviously not knowing your culture you can you can feel it in the staff but uh the presentation of the venues it's a the group is a great example of you know investment into presentation and how impactful that can be on the guests I used to We used to do a bit of work with Heath Bainbridge when he was um, in the business. And I'm not going to ask you to repeat the number, but he did share with me how much the business spends on flowers each year. And it was was quite mind-blowing, to be honest. But obviously, you know, it's a huge part of what people feel when they walk into the spaces.
0: AJ, if we just focus on you for a second. So, and obviously you've been in leadership roles and run your own business and those things for a while, but taking on a CEO role is always a challenge for anybody like what's it been like what are you enjoying what are the main challenges been in the first little while there
2: i think taking on this role was exciting for me because i'm a a, in a point of my career where i felt as though i was ready to lead a business and and particularly a, a reasonably large business first and foremost my first protocol was surround yourself with great people and i definitely inherited a few of those in the boathouse team some i didn't feel like were probably the right fit for the future state and thinking and what we wanted to achieve uh and then there were the likes of people that i know throughout the industry who um were interested in in coming and working with me uh, and a couple of them who were previous colleagues from you know past years and Ben also showed his interest in coming and working and and I felt as though that he and I had worked very well together. And so, you know, again, primarily is build a great team and surround yourself, particularly when when you're in my role, of people that you can trust and equally people that have got skills and capability that are better than yours in their particular fields. And I, I remember a, a quote I either read or heard and someone saying that, you know, the CEO's role is, is or can be sometimes the loneliest in the business because you are, you know, you you constantly try to make good judgment calls or great judgment calls. You're constantly trying to work out how you're going to make the business more profitable, but you're equally trying to balance obviously all that from a brand point of view. And to your point, Luke, you know, things like looking on the P&L and seeing the amount of money that's spent on flowers and you think, well, that's a pretty easy red pen slash and burn, but got to be careful and guided. And particularly with people like Ben, for me to go, you know, our brand is really important. It's not all about, the, the bottom line result. So I I think after nine months in of uh I've got a great team of people who I trust implicitly. And I really try to, and I think I do, Ben can probably answer. I think I, I let them do their jobs and I really try to just let them give me great advice on what they think should happen. And there are sometimes tiebreakers and you know you've got to make calls on thing. But I am very confident that we've got the right people in our leadership team, and I'm also very confident that we've got uh, the right people, you know, in our group roles, and also our VMs are, are, are very good. and And there'll no doubt and inevitably be change in some of those roles because people come and go. But I'm excited about the future. But it's you know to summarise all that, it's exciting. I wake up every day and know that I'm going to be faced with a series of challenges, but I'm also surrounded by people that can help me make the right decisions.
1: You obviously came, AJ, from a very large role. Um, Two-part question here, maybe it's one answer, but is the how different is this role as CEO to your previous role, given the, the scale um, of it, and obviously understanding your position in that business, and is the CEO role in general different to what you thought it was going to be?
2: Are there different responsibilities than you envisaged? Good question. Uh I don't think it's different. There is definitely it is different to the role I was performing. The difference in the role that I'm now in is that there is uh a lot more engagement with the key stakeholders in the family that own the business outright and that takes, you know, a fairly significant amount of, of time and energy of my day-to-day role because they they're not effectively by their own admission or description they're not hospitality people they're very they're very successful um, operators in in the property field and development and so forth but i find myself uh, sitting in and participating in a lot more discussion around um, finance matters funding expansion growth which are all the things that you would expect the role to be involved in but what it does do is takes away a lot of the time that i probably have previously spent working you know with Ben for example on on things that are either very heavily brand related but but again it comes back to for me I'm very confident that I've got the people in my team now that I've got to step away and stop doing those things and let those people do those things and I've got to actually focus on how the business performance looks and equally bringing bringing great people into the business and and that I take that quite seriously because the the team that i have around me is a reflection of of who i am and quite frankly when we walk in to see a bank or when we walk in to see a business partner then those people are going to judge our business but equally me and my team on how they think we're going to perform in this industry and luckily we've had great success in in being able to sit down with with people that want to invest with us in the business and i don't mean from a financial capital investment i mean brands wanting to invest with us in our business because they can see the the caliber of the people that we have that are going to take this business to the next level
0: i'll just ask a couple of specifics as well then uh because i think you mentioned 700 odd um and then uh in terms of the your immediate team obviously you i think you've built that um in the last nine months or inherited and remolded no doubt but have you had to go more broadly across the organisation with cultural reset activity, is there someone in the leadership team that looks specifically after um, people culture matters? Um,
2: I I see that one as not my job, I see that as our job. Uh, I think that the, the senior team sets the tone and the culture of the business every day and have I had to reset it? No I, I am very fortunate that I've inherited a fantastic business and a lot of great people in that business. and there there's still three people in the leadership team who are long tenured and I mean eight to ten plus years people who are very very capable um, are contributing to the at the highest level as we transition and we uh, become really agile about what we're changing and they are adapting very very quickly to that and that that is balanced out with people coming in from external businesses to be able to complement that and i think what we've done is in the last six months particularly is we've kind of blown up pretty much everything in the business not from a cultural standpoint but definitely from a systems operation and expectation point of view so some naturally have have decided that they you know want to move on to different or greener pastures and a lot of people though have said you know what this is exciting it feels like and, and a lot of people kind of refer to it as the boathouse 2.0 version and uh, that's exciting to me because the, the agility piece on going you know what we're going to change that system we're going to change that system we're going to change actually you know what we're going to change all the systems because we think we're going to get better business intelligence out of it to make better business decisions together, it's been quite remarkable. So definitely haven't inherited a poor culture at all. We're just building on what was already here.
0: This could be going down a rabbit hole, and we want to ask some other questions, but as you talk, if you think just through the now, and Luke, you should jump in on this because you are seeing it more daily in what you do but i find like if you sort of just think last three three years right the covid impact around stands and of course staff retention etc etc and then you know stabilize recover a lot of the work that i do obviously is dealing with even more macro forces on you, you know entertainment consumption more broadly people's habit changes decentralization of going out work from home all these things are having a bearing on business models and um one thing and as reflected um in Uh, this vibrancy reform agenda, which is um, legislation in front of the house, maybe it's passed by the time this comes out, I don't know. But really what we're thinking about is flexibility, trying to change the structures in which um, the going out economy or hospitality can work, which reflect the need for adaptation because things have changed. And the thing that listening to you talk about from an organisational perspective is and i'm sure this happens at other times but i think more dramatically now um as we embrace a new uh era really um for any number of reasons is the ability to as leaders coming into an organization either bring some people in take some on the journey and and all with a view to embracing a new future doesn't suit all people all the time i guess and in um other corporate environments um you know, there's a, sometimes you see whole leadership team, you know, replaced behind a CEO, et cetera. But I think for this sector and Luke, you know, I don't know if there's any other comparisons in the market, but such an advantage if you can uh, bring uh, a good chunk of the business and the team with you through major systems overhaul through revisioning, et cetera, um, because obviously you, you're not having to build everything. You're just re, recalibrating or, or use the word pivot probably is a bit tried. but any views on that,
2: I am of the view that once we started to well, once once I in particular in the first three months started to discover what what it was that that I've inherited because no one ever gives you you know the the full full visibility piece on what you're actually going to be dealing with started to realize that for us to scale and for us to get better insights into the performance of our business we're going to have to change systems and as much as i don't think anybody really wants to say yep let's invest this money that we could put into other new venues or whatever into systems it was really really important the second part of that mike to your question was if we're going to do that the disruption is large, right? We all know, like changing a system, regardless of how big or small it is, it's disruptive. And you got to communicate it, you got to embed it, you got to have an implementation strategy and it's expensive to the business. So I, I just kind of thought, you know what, if we're going to change things, I'd rather change all of it now <laughs> and have the most, you know, the most disruptive period that we're probably going to have in my time then I would like try to piecemeal things together as we go through the next three or four years. So, you know, whether it's Ben or me or Sam, that's our head of transformation, you know, it, it was really beneficial having Sam, who has been in this business for 10 years, who has the legacy understanding of the systems that sit in place to get him to really focus on actually really going about setting it up for success in the future, and it's, it just happens to be something that he's very good at, was really beneficial. And then to bring in another party into our team, who is our operational lead in George McLean, was again, really beneficial because he can really focus on just delivering the results in the venues. So, I mean, it's a long-winded answer, I know, but the the summary again is I I would prefer to blow it up and make it hard or disruptive for the team now than try to piecemeal it again later on.
0: maybe we can just talk about, you know, the, it's coming towards the end of the 20, 2023, like how's, um? what are you seeing across the sector? How? What's the vibe? How are things going? Um, optimism, affordability issues. Uh, what's exciting you in the industry that,
3: I, I mean, I guess from the current market point of view, and I'm sure you've had conversations with lots of people in the industry, there's, there's definitely a, a shift happening in consumer behavior and hospitality. And for us, what we're really seeing quite clearly is um, a bit of a surge in our more casual offerings um, in terms of locations like um, Shelley Beach Cafe and, and Balmoral. They've really been performing really well. And, you know, the, I guess the hypothesis there is that people are kind of um, trading down, but they still want to go out and have that social occasion. Um, and um, But at the same time, we've obviously... Seen, you know what's happening in the in the economic um, environment for you know the last six months, and we've been really focused on innovating and um, and focused on uh, improving our product and looking at every sort of opportunity we can to drive foot traffic into our venues and, and really compete um, with what is you know I guess a a challenging hospitality environment at the moment. So. Over the last three or four months, we've implemented multiple projects um, that are really addressing some of the, that headwind, I guess, that we're seeing with regards to the industry, um, working on product overhauls, new menus. We've rebranded um, a couple of venues. We've extended trading hours and venues to try and open up, you know, new um, consumption occasions. Um, we've, you know, tried a whole host of things. Um, we've also really started to invest more into entertainment, And we've engaged a local musician his name is sean marchetti he's a local manly musician but we've brought him on as like a music director and we've you know committed to a a significant investment um, into live entertainment um, and um, local artists especially in the manly area so down at manly pavilion which is one of our venues we've got live music now every friday saturday sunday Um, over at shelley beach we're starting to invest more into fridays and sundays live music there um, we've um, got live music every weekend up at Batonga. Uh, we're looking at our summer programming and we're just looking at more opportunities to bring live music into our venues to really firstly try and attract more people. And secondly, you know, when they're there, try and keep them there for longer. Um, and obviously that's, you know, how we win in our industry. And I guess at the same time, we're talking a lot about changing consumer behavior um you know innovating with regards to our product offering you know our happy hours where where we can um do things differently to try and i guess attract customers still into our venues even though they might be um you know have a little bit less money in their pockets
0: it's um uh, well from where i sit um encouraging um to hear and um i guess one of the Key things that our work's really associated with is um, trying to diversify offering like across the sector, across the city, but also within hospitality. And specifically, and I would be remiss not to just mention um, that we've recently, I think last week, launched Venues Unlocked, which has a specific stream for hospitality businesses looking to embrace live music. And hopefully, um, what we've designed there may be suitable to your business or, or to others. Anyone listening, but it's. Um, really just trying to enable businesses to, to get back into live performance and through a capability exercise and then a grant program that will open up in February as well next year. Um, so there's a few things there, just Google venues unlocked for anyone that's interested in that. But I think that the broader thing for me is um, just the understanding again, back to that idea of, and this is what we're trying to do on the regulatory front as well, is just to create a more flexible environment so that, and it's been described in the past as venue morphing, um, which, is, is somewhat negative um, framing to me because it really relates to license types and people who in the past have, you know, sort of launched the restaurant and then turned it into a nightclub. But what um, at least uh, we understand at the moment is that more flexibility better. Um, and so how do you change the um, environment to allow for things like alfresco? fresco? Um,
3: That's right. I mean- it's definitely our mindset is, you know, to be opportunistic in with regards to the different occasions that we can create in our venues. And you know, I mentioned it earlier, but extending trading hours at a place like Shelly Beach was something that this business has never done before. But there's a there's a market there, you know, there's in summer, there's a market of people on the beach. And we have an opportunity to capture that market with our venue location. Where I am today at Manly Pavilion, you know, we've got space on the ground floor that we're going to launch a kind of summer pop-up wine bar. Um, so our mindset is very much creating new occasions, creating different reasons for people to come out um, and enjoy, you know, hospitality um, and, you know, not getting complacent.
0: And the other the other bit that um, I, I think um, as I travel around that there's a propensity in some to behind it's an affordability issue headwinds economic but what what it belies is actually a generational issue and a preference in consumption modes um price points rate of consumption these things uh and it's you know if you look at the numbers in terms of um percentage audience around millennial um and zillennial and z market share wise it is you know 60 plus percent and uh the extent to which we somewhat you know, I don't know, guilty of saying it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, these types of occasions, as you're talking about, it's quite rigid in its thinking, actually. And I don't know that I feel like that's a generational issue, potentially and an affordability issue. I think the affordability stuff is real. But uh, to me, I'm trying to increase the understanding of what future audiences are after.
2: I reckon on that, Mike, what we've seen is, um, and I, I don't think it's uncommon, but when you look at the way in which our bookings spread, you know, you see, and I think it's maybe a little bit of a COVID kind of impact. Obviously, the the volume, or not obviously, the volume of people for us is still there. It's just the times in which they are choosing to eat, dine, slash, you know, whatever you want to call it. And so if you look at Manly Pavilion as an example, tomorrow will be a good example of, you know, bookings will start at 11 a.m., which is when we open and they will continually go through probably up until, you know, 9:30 tomorrow evening but the majority of the trade is not, you know, at midday so to speak it's actually really evenly spread across the day and I think that's probably a little bit due to, you know, some people wouldn't say tourists probably but there are some of that but it's the walk-in trade mixed with the people that know that they want to have a seat that's guaranteed but then to Ben's point about Shelly, you see Shelley Beach, which actually books up quite early in the afternoon slash evening, you know, five o'clock bookings for people coming out with their kids. And whereas, you know, if I go back 10 years, you know, my previous role, you know, it wasn't wasn't uncommon to see bookings at, you know, 8.30, 9.30, that kind of thing. But you, you never kind of really got the early, early bookings. And I think that behaviour has changed quite a bit. Agreed. Ben, I, I wanted to ask you
0: uh it's a bit of a going back to topic you mentioned earlier in the podcast that's all right but and aj mentioned it as well just around um brand partnerships and often in hospitality brand partnerships like often is restricted to as, as no no issue with it but the alcohol partnerships um but i was just thinking through like the you know the lifestyle offering and the homeware stuff and um you know and, and also just with changing uh, habits consumption reduction etc like are you in that territory around i guess um non-traditional brand partnerships or is it too early to say
3: uh i mean definitely um i think entering into this business and it's it's quite a different business even though it's a hospitality business to kind of the environment i've come from so it always opens up a whole new world of sort of opportunity with regards to how you can approach brand partnerships. But to your point, there's a there's the natural, you know, brand partnership fits, which obviously sit in the kind of beverage world. Um, and we have, you know, um, gone out and sort of renegotiated a lot of our sort of supply agreements and, you um, and, Worked with uh, a couple of key suppliers in terms of you know investment into the future of this this business, which is wonderful and really supports us. And trying to kind of get some activation and things going that we we thought was really a, a you know priority for us as a business. Um, but then I think outside of that. You're right, you know, that you got to stay ahead of, um, you know, what is, in my eyes, going to be authentic and genuine brand partnerships that you could strike with, um, whether it's brands, but also, I mean, people are brands now, I think, and that's like a really interesting area. Um, you know, how do we work with people, whether it's the people within our business or, you know, externally people to find kind of mutual ways of you know growing whether it's their personal brand or um or our brand um collectively so you know i've never worked in the homewares world for example but you know that world is very different and and i think there's an opportunity there with aligning you know our homewares brand with people that you know fit that sort of um customer base that we're trying to talk to for example so always the world of partnerships is about innovating and at the end of the day what comes out needs to be genuine and feel authentic um rather than um rather than not obviously so yeah i, I mean it's an interesting world
1: i wanted to you've let us led me to this point um or this question sorry in terms of your your role and how that's changed coming into Boathouse and referencing what you just said around renegotiating sort of supplier agreements and looking at key strategic partnerships. I mean that's that's typically a function of brand or marketing, um, which was you know, obviously your, your role at Maryvale was Group Head of Marketing and now your title is Head of Commercial and Marketing where in my line of work we do a lot of sort of senior marketing appointments and there has been a significant move towards retitling those roles and the word commercial coming in to the the title and and obviously the remit of the role, what does that look like for you in your business in terms of that commercial focus separate to marketing, and what kind of added responsibilities or focuses does that give you?
3: yeah, sure I mean I guess the the key focus for me we think about commercial the definition is um, really how do we how do we make? more money for the business um you know <laughs> like um where are the opportunities that we can either from a, a top line point of view or a bottom line point of view um or a cost-based point of view find um areas of growth so you know as we mentioned the first real focus was to go out and, and really um renegotiate some of the supply deals and um and share the i guess the business plan and and the trajectory of this business and really look for partners to invest into the business to really support that plan for growth Um, and obviously at the same time um, help us with our cost base Um, look for ways of getting more kind of partnership investment into the business where whether it be with like joint marketing sort of funds or um, assistance with things like capex and and things that we are going to require um, as a business as we go through a growth period but then at the top, at the top end, I think where like the marketing and commercial piece kind of come together is like how do you actually grow the business in terms of how do you get more people into through the doors and how do you actually get them to spend more while they're here. So, I think the marketing side of that, you know, if you go back to the the basic marketing, you know, um, definitions of you know product, price, and and promotion is really where we've just gone back to basics and really focused um on have we got the right product and so really pulling together the team and um and collaborating on what we think um our product is and where it should be um and where we should focus attention and then i think one thing that this business you know wasn't probably focusing enough attention on was combining the decision making with you know the marketing function of the business and the product side of the business and making decisions that were beneficial to you know both i guess functions so you know i'm a firm believer that you create product that is easy to sell you know and and the marketing and the product sides of the business need to collaborate and work together on um on building what that offering is um, and obviously the pricing um, from a customer point of view is so important and then how do we actually promote it and how do we um, get the word out there so yeah that's how my role has evolved i'm a lot a lot more sort of involved in the broader business than probably my previous positions and less so kind of in one lane or, or one sort of marketing function, which has been really exciting for me.
1: It is, it's definitely a, a trend that's emerging and, and not just in hospitality businesses, but I think it's, you know, my background, I was in a group marketing role in a, in a com- different hospitality business many years back and there was always that friction point between marketing, understanding operations and how the activity would... Impact a business, and and it's That's right. Uh, there are uh, there are many businesses that I know of who are, who are repositioning sort of senior marketing roles into being more commercial. But um, I think probably interesting for people listening who maybe are looking at that at the moment and understanding how common that that trend is. But it, it also belies a very different skill set. because not everyone I've ever worked with in marketing could go into a commercial role because they just you know the the financial acumen or commercial acumen just you know can be lacking.
2: I think to your point, Luke, that, that is exactly the meeting point that, that is, is the learning, particularly over the years, you know, many, many years. But Ben and I and the rest of our team, whether it's Sam or James, it doesn't matter who it is, we're all responsible for the result. It's not I'm responsible for the result and, you know, Ben will do his job and James will do his job. It's. Ben's, Ben's equally as responsible for the result as I am, as is our transformational change lead in Sam or our, you know, culinary lead in James or, and I think once people understand that is it, it's quite, it's quite powerful because when they start to realize that they do have a net effect on the result and they are responsible for the result, that is when you start to get people to go, oh, wow. okay. So I need to understand this PL. I need to understand what the impacts are and I need to understand how the brand positioning is going to change that and how the product's going to work. And, and you know, the collective nature of us sitting down together to talk about that and then equally do a tasting together and then equally give feedback to, to James and his team or whoever it might be about what we think from a product point of view or a pricing point of view or a performance point of view. To me, that if you get that right, that's when you really start to move quickly and you're agile and, and people start to be empowered to make better decisions about the business and you overlay the data from the systems and then all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're making decisions that are high impact as opposed to anecdotal thinking where you, which is, is quite frankly where we've been until now around, well, you know, it looks good, tastes good, but should be priced, you know, somewhere around here as opposed to actually doing proper analysis and proper you know positioning of our product i think
3: the thing i've learned over the years in hospitality is that if your product's not 10 out of 10 there's no point going out and and marketing it and driving you know people into your venue because Mm. it's all about the product and experience and you know you might be able to get people in there once but if they don't have a good time they're not going to come back again so you know really that's where we need to focus all of our attention in terms of getting that to a 10 out of 10 and then when we feel like we're really perfect then we start to drive people in there, and that's when the kind of snowball effect starts to happen.
1: Sounds so simple when you put it like that, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Have a good product, tell people about it, and you should be all good. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Luke, do you reckon this is the? This is probably this is going to be our last podcast. So, should, should we make the mistake of asking people for a prediction for twenty twenty four, and then do the final flight?
2: I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you my view if you want it. Yeah, yeah. On anything, I think that we are going to continue to see what Ben highlighted, which is there's going to be lots of pressure from a economic point of view. Um, I think people's disposables are going to be quite. Um, scrutinised in their own family environments or their own, you know, their own world, so to speak. And I think for that reason, I'm I'm very um, grateful and confident that we're sitting and playing in a segment that is an area that is probably one of the least impacted areas. I also think that there is going to be a huge opportunity for acquisition and um, some some new sites, particularly for us as a business. I think that there's going to be some, you know, assets that are going to come onto the market as a result of some of those pressures. Equally, I think that there's there's going to be, to your point, Mike, a change in the way in which people eat and drink. And we are we are not a booze-led business, so to speak. We're very much a food-led business. And, you know, from a balanced point of view, I, I I'd like to see us a bit more balanced in food and beverage. But I'm I'm also confident that you know we're not a nightclub and we don't rely. Purely on alcohol sales, we're 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 um we're we're nicely positioned to be able to continue to bring people into our brand, and we're going to expand our brand. So, I'm 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 confident about the future, but we're all going to have to work a lot harder to to retain our guests and to give them reasons to come into our brand, and you know, and then stay consumers of our brand. That's that's my uh, crystal ball. I think just to add to that, from my point of view,
3: and I'm a bit of a glass half full. Person, but I think um, obviously the headwinds in the industry is presents an environment that's really exciting with regards to like innovation in hospitality. I think you know that old saying that, that like pressure builds diamonds and. I think what we're going to see in the next 12 months is, um, a lot of like really exciting innovation around product and, you know, people creating new experiences and, and things like that. So I'm really excited to see kind of what comes out of, um, you know, both the Sydney hospitality scene and, and broadly around the world as well.
0: Um, excellent. And, and just kind of, um, in, in response a little bit, one of the things that occurs to me with your business and also for others listening is that we, we, getting closer to international visitation normalizing post COVID. like it is still a missing segment in the market and obviously um for you particularly with your assets um probably um well positioned for you know international inbound as it as it normalizes in the next um 12 months so i do i do take the opportunity just to recognize that we're still there is a bit of our market which hasn't necessarily returned Mm
2: well thank you guys i appreciate the discussion it was uh it was very good one And, and you know thanks for having us on
0: We want to do our final five aj um with your 10 so we will ask the five questions
1: um and each just give an answer we won't rip through you one at a time so um favorite books that you have read recently or podcast that you listen to ben you go first
3: um sure i mean i only read uh, cookbooks but i'll say a podcast i think um i love the um the how other dad's dad um podcast with hamish blake and Um, As a dad of some young kids, I've I've been finding a lot of um, enjoyment out of listening to those.
1: What was it called? Sorry, I couldn't quite hear.
3: It's called How Other Dads Dad. All right. Um, It's Hamish Blake's podcast. um, And he has, you know, other dads on and they talk about their their kind of dad approach.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice, I'm uh, adding it to my list now. (laughs) Right (laughs) right, right, (laughs) down now. (laughs)
3: exactly.
1: Uh, uh, AJ, how about you? Book or podcast?
2: Mate, I'm not a reader. I, I, I unfortunately haven't picked up a book in quite some, quite some time. But from a podcast point of view, and I'm not saying this to to blow smoke up your proverbials, but I, I actually have listened to a lot of your podcasts. So I, I love hearing about people in the industry and you know what they're doing. And I, I particularly enjoyed Paul Waterson's. I thought his was was his was excellent. And I've I got a lot of Time and respect for Paul. I think he's a fantastic guy and a really good operator. And he's a very smart guy. Yeah, nice.
1: Um, in terms of um, music, album, or artist that you are listening to right now, or just your um, all-time go-to, Ben.
3: I, my kids really uh, decide this, but I'm really into that um, that Doja Cat song right now. I guess would be my favorite song. <laughs> Take the town red. <laughs> yeah, nice i've got vampirina
1: on uh loop at the moment how about you <laughs> well
2: my, mine's a bit mine's a bit strange and a bit obscure to be honest but a bit bit like ben so i got a i've got a 16 year old and he's recently discovered ice cube and i've been listening to ice cube <laughs> recently because it's been on his spotify list and i jumped in the car the other day and it started blaring through and i and i started to reminisce a little bit about my age and I, I was having a bit of a laugh so i've been listening to ice cube in the last couple of weeks which has been quite funny to be honest with you Yeah, right that's good
1: um it doesn't get old uh well maybe it does i haven't listened to ice cube for a while but it's still good stuff drink favorite drink right now ben uh i'd have to say campari and
3: soda my, my go-to right now
2: yeah cool how about you aj uh i'm a little bit different mate i'm a bit more mature as far as age goes <laughs> than, uh, than, than ben is so i i've got to say i really really enjoy a nice quality glass of shardy so i i love a beer on a hot day but i can't and don't want to drink as many of them as i used to so a nice glass of shardy yeah nice any uh particular um brand you would call out oh i i'm a i'm a big toll puddle chardonnay fan but i can't afford to drink it all the time but it's a it's an exceptional wine i really enjoy it yeah it is good
1: uh ben favorite venue anywhere in the world domestic or international doesn't matter
3: i'm gonna have to be a bit biased on this one um bit of a shameless plug but our uh, our new italian pop-up up up in palm beach the casa by the boathouse i think i went there on saturday night it was awesome like great experience great food great great pizza um, really good cocktail list it's really fun
2: yeah nice aj i actually hadn't thought a lot about this uh there 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 is an occasion that i remember overseas that i was blown away by as far as just a wonderful location setting and probably you know it's not an exceptional starred restaurant by any stretch but i went to blue marlin in ibiza and had a one of the best long lunches I think I've ever had in my life. So I've got to say that was that was an exceptional and still well mem- remembered occasion. Okay, finally, who are you uh,
1: most inspired by? Can be in hospitality, doesn't have to be, um, but Ben for yourself.
3: I think um, I'd like to keep it local and manly, and I think there's a really cool kind of hospitality scene developing, and um, one of the, the groups. I'd refer to as they're called the Good Good Company. And they've got a couple of venues like Buster and they've got a wine shop called Winona And they're doing some really, really cool stuff. So I think I'll um I'll plug them.
2: Yeah, nice. How about you, AJ? I am probably more um rather than another group, I'm I've been lucky enough and inspired by a range of of fairly influential people, I guess, in the industry. I think uh, James Brinley, the the ex MD of Lion, was is an exceptional operator. He's a very smart man. I've got a lot of time for him, and and I often refer to him for, you know, um, advice and counsel. Uh, equally, in a similar industry but but different different um, um, drinks provision, Brian Fryer from Pernod, I think again is a, a fantastic human being who has as again given me playing a good counsel over the years and has been a great business partner for for a long long time so th- those two are the the two that stand out for me yeah nice
0: very good well um i think uh all' I was about to do is to thank you for both joining us on the back of house podcast i think um also just thanks um very much for you know what you do for uh the city and and you know, residents and visitors to it like it's a great um, asset that we've got um both in you personally, but also in the group, um, as place to point people to, is experiencing the best of our our, our Harbour City, um, and I wish you the best for 2024.
2: Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you so I, much. I want to Want to. I want to uh, thank. Luke for soldiering through this because you can tell that he's not very well. So, well done to you, Luke.
1: <laughs> Thank you, mate. Uh, all good. Hopefully, we get a chance to catch up uh, in person ahead of Christmas if time permits. Yeah,
2: good one. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you having us on today. No worries. Thanks, yeah, thanks for having us.